you're reaching for the pizza and you check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want to eat that pizza. You just tumble down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, pizza's not pizza. Food isn't food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and may not even know about. Hello and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for joining me. I created this space as a passion project to support those on their healing journey through this amazing life in hopes of you living your best life because when we are healthy, the sky's the limit. And when we are unwell, it feels like everything is overwhelming and scary. Today's guest is Dr. Anita Johnston, certified eating disorder specialist and the author of the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. I came by her work through a few clients of mine who recommended the book, and I wasn't more than halfway through it when I reached out and asked her to come on the podcast because I have been searching for a eating disorder specialist to have on the podcast, both for my own interest and understanding, but also I had an eating disorder when I was in high school. And I healed it myself. I did therapy later on to get to the core reasons why, but I never told anybody in my family or anybody close to me that I had it and that I healed it. And it was a few-year process that I underwent because of how much shame I felt around doing it. I had no idea that that's what it was called. If you are listening and you are struggling, I hope this gives you some tools and you look up Dr. Johnston's work if you'd like to find out more about her. I will be linking it all in the show notes. I also wanted to let you know that my group course will be closing on June 26, 2023. My next group course will be run in January of 2024. So if you are interested, check out the link and uh, read more about it. See if it's right for you. All right. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Dr. Johnston. Welcome to the Your Great Podcast. I, I work with creating healthy protocols for women, especially. I work with men as well, but most of my clients are women. And including myself, somewhere in the area of 95% of my clients have a disordered eating background or are in the middle of working through an eating disorder. And it just, it blows me away. It really does. Like, why do women, I don't know the stats on men because I work with mostly women, but profound. Yeah. How come? How come? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Christian, I've been asking for 40 years. <laughs> Way back in the early 1980s is when I started asking that question. And I had been supervising a psychology intern who was doing her doctoral dissertation on the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And so we started to talk about this and, and asking this question. And we were joined by a third woman who was a social worker who had had her own recovery from an eating disorder. And she had to figure it out all herself. And so every time we got together to talk, we said, oh my gosh, there's so many people that are struggling with this. There should be a center for it. And after we said it for about the fifth time, we looked at each other and went, all right, I guess we're it. And so we created a center and it was actually a center without walls because we would meet weekly just trying to solve this mystery. What my questions were, first of all, was why was it girls and women? Because back then, there were girls and women of all ages, all sizes, all ethnicities, all walks of life, but very few males were showing up back in those days. So the first question was, well, why women? And second of all, why are these particular girls and women? And third, why was the struggle around 
food and eating and body image. So those are the questions that I have sat with all these years. And, and I, it, because I'm a, I'm a storyteller and as a psychologist, I guess I'm a trained story listener. I decided to listen as carefully as I could to their stories to see if I could find what's the common denominator, right? What's that? What's the connecting thread that all of these very diverse individuals had in addition to the struggle with eating and food and body? And what I discovered is that they were very much like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, right? There was this grand procession where the emperor's wearing his new outfits, but of course he's totally naked. All the townspeople are ooing and aahing because they didn't want their neighbor to think they were stupid. But there was a child in the crowd that said in a very loud voice, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. So what I was starting to see is that these people that were struggling were very much like the child in that story in that they were emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, and had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. They were able to pick up on what was what the vibe was. They could read between the lines. They could see the bigger picture. They could sense hypocrisy. They could tell when things were not right, even though everyone around them was saying, everything's fine, everything's fine. And because their life wasn't a fairy tale, they had to find some way to stay connected to everyone else. And they started to feel like there's something wrong with me. Because everyone else is saying, what are you talking about? You're overreacting. You're being too sensitive. And so the, way, the place the food and the body came in is somewhere along the line, they went on a diet. And then they got this idea, oh, I know what's wrong with me. I'm too fat or I'm the wrong size or I'm blah, blah, blah. And all I have to do is lose weight and everything will be fine. And so then they got captivated by that. And never really learned how to deal with their emotionally sensitive nature. So the problem never got solved. Right. It just got transferred to a coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I identify with that. I was a highly sensitive child who was always calling, you know, parents out, adults out in my life on stuff and being punished for it. And interestingly enough, I didn't know it was an eating disorder until I was sitting in a class and they were talking about eating disorders. And I was like, oh, I have an eating disorder. I was in high school. And a lot of the work that I did was around not feeling loved, not feeling seen. And so your book, when I started reading it, I just started, I was like, yes, yes, sensitive, intuitive, but, but told the opposite of, no, this isn't true. This thing that you feel isn't true, aka, even if it is true, I'm not validating it in you. Mm -hmm. for whatever yeah. reason, right? Yeah, that there's something wrong with you. Is yeah. what happens. And then you begin the hunt and then, you know, come across because nobody looks the beauty ideal that's put out there by the culture. So you stumble across that and you go, oh, that's what it is. If I'm thin, I'll be loved. I'll be seen. Mm -hmm. I'll be accepted. And then the shame around not not actually being able to get there because the reality is, is we're all individuals and we're all unique. And to strive to fit into this ideal, <laughs> if anything, almost makes us, the person in that position, feel more rejected and less loved. Right. That's why the recovery journey is the exact opposite and of trying to be the way you think you're supposed to be and really finding the uniqueness of your own being. And I like to kind of zoom out to explain this to people is that we're mammals and, and we're born with two very powerful drives. One is the drive for attachment or connection because, because we're not turtles or lizards. We don't hatch out of an egg and go our, on our own way, right? We have to attach to our caregivers in order to survive. And so as a result, we have this very, very strong drive. But because we're humans, we also have another equally powerful drive, and that's the drive for authenticity. That's the drive to become the unique being that we are, to live our unique destiny. 
But what happens, and this happens for all of us, some more to one degree than another, in childhood, these two drives come into conflict. And guess which one wins? Attachment, right? It has to. We have to survive. And so what that looks like is little kid wants a cookie. And mommy says, no, you can't have a cookie. We're having dinner in an hour. And little kid goes, I want a cookie. I want a cookie. And mommy says, if you don't cut that out right now, you're not going to get any cookies at all. So little kid goes, okay, I don't want a cookie. Because what little kid has figured out is that in order to get my needs met, I have to be the way mommy wants me to be. And and it, this is not a bad thing. I mean, our, our survival depends on it. Now imagine you're someone that is emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive. You're going to be really, really good at picking up on and responding to how others you imagine others want you to be, like a like a chameleon. So the problem is though that then this becomes a pattern of whenever the two drives are in conflict, the attachment, the connection drive wins. And we carry this pattern into adulthood when really authenticity is the one that needs to win. Now, the the problem with this is that whenever you choose attachment or connection over authenticity, it creates a tension inside your being. If you think of a towel being twisted in two different directions, and eventually this tension becomes painful to the point where you will reach for anything to cope with that pain. And it might be drugs, alcohol, shopping, or eating. And so the task, really the recovery task, is how to be your authentic self and be in relationship with others at the same time because we're social beings right and so the the job of the disordered eating has been to alleviate that tension or to numb that tension or to distract you from that tension but it never really solves the problem no and it and in a weird way it perpetuates that separateness because it's almost like the secret life of self right exactly yeah yeah you discover oh i can be myself as long as I'm by myself. So one of the things an eating disorder does is it insulates you, it isolates you. And so you get to be yourself. You create a a bubble around yourself that nobody can penetrate, right? Especially with all the secrecy. Or you enter a relationship and you abandon a huge chunk of yourself at the doorstep of the relationship, which creates even more tension and pain. And so you need the disordered eating, or maybe you might sabotage the relationship, blow it up so you can go back to being alone and being by yourself. Yeah, wow. That's deep. That is so deep. And 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 also it's interesting. I used to think of myself as a chameleon. So it's all of the things you're saying really hit. And as I healed my disordered relationship with myself, because I realized and you say this in your book, it's not about the food. It's about this disordered relationship to self, this lack of self, this lack of you're okay as you are, or as you are discovering yourself, that's okay. Like these, this journey is okay. And it, it was almost as if when I healed the disordered relationship to food, I began to discover my authentic self. Yes, because that that connection had been frayed. And again, it's not a bad choice to choose attachment when when you're growing up, and especially if you're in a difficult household. I mean, it's like good for you to choose that. But the very thing that helped you back then could be getting in your way. So my favorite metaphor that I use to describe that, and I remember a, a woman sitting in my office many years ago, and I'm trying to explain to her the process of of recovery and And I said, imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids and along comes a big log and you grab on. And that log saves your life. You surely would have been pulled under. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there you can see the riverbanks, but you can't get there because you're holding onto the log. So the irony is the very thing that saved your life is now getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And this is important to understand with disordered eating. It has served a function, a very important function, and it would behoove you to find out what it is. Because to make it more complicated, 
there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log, right? And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the reality is letting go of that log may not be the first thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of that log and you start to swim to shore because maybe that person loves you more than life itself. Or maybe that person is the top eating disorder expert in the country. But you get halfway there and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either. And you're really sunk. So I believe we all have a wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Well, let go of the log and try floating. And when you start to sink, grab back on. Then you let go of the log and you practice treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. Then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, twice, 10 times, 100 times, whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore. Then you let go of the log because it no longer has a job to do. How does the eating disorder save us? Well, it keeps you from drowning in some very strong emotional currents, right? Whether it's the loneliness or the shame or the fear or the anger, when it feels intolerable, you can immerse yourself in the eating disorder and that fades into the background. Or maybe you have a love-hate relationship with your mother, or maybe your boyfriend just ditched you, or you're on a career path that doesn't serve you. These require a complex set of skills to solve. But if you can just distract yourself with the eating disorder, then there's some relief in that. And so now the function of the disordered eating becomes a red herring. It distracts you from this other stuff that is super troublesome. And maybe you don't have the skills yet in order to address. But they're skills. They can be learned. Anyone can learn them. Mm. And, and I was reading in your book that you didn't see, and also you said at the beginning, that you didn't see necessarily a thread between all people with a disordered eating. You had people coming from a happy family background as well. Well, it, so in the beginning, I, there was some research that said eating disorders are a result of trauma. And back then, I yes, there were individuals who had very traumatic experiences or very troubled childhoods, but there were all these folks that, that came from loving, intact families and they were struggling as well. Nowadays, you know, I have a residential treatment center, Ipono in Hawaii, and when you need that level of care, usually there's trauma. Yeah. And I remember I wrote that book 20, 25 years ago. So we have a totally different understanding of what trauma is, right? We now, we're not looking at just PTSD from a single incident or two. We're looking at complex trauma. So it's a little more nuanced. So I don't know if I'm seeing more trauma or less, but we also understand trauma isn't so much what happened to you, but it's how you respond to what happened to you. Now, mind you, if you're emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, what might be no big deal to somebody else penetrates your very bone. So I would revise that because I'm not so sure anymore that there's not any trauma. Depends so, on what the trauma, what, how you define it. Right. So you could come from a loving, intact family, but depending on how you were related to in that family and, and not seen or not cared for in the way that you were needing or friends bullying <laughs> outside of the, the safe family unit, right? Like something else could be at play there. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine if you're born what I call thin-skinned, and I happen to believe, by the way, that that's a good thing, because what comes with it is a level of compassion and empathy that the world really needs. And so uh, that typically is someone who struggles with disordered eating. They have lots of that. They are thin-skinned. But what if they're born into a thick-skinned family? Who's going to teach them how to navigate the world when they really feel things deeply? So a lot of times, you know, comments like, just get over it already, or why are you making such a big deal out of that, can be traumatic. Right, because, yeah, absolutely. Wow, I mean, everything just really hits because I I, I just, yeah, I mean, I was always said, you're so sensitive. You're so sensitive. So it's so interesting that the sensitive person in a family would walk away with an eating That's disorder true. because, yeah, and not having the tools. So I'm really interested in the tools because 
a lot of my community listening is going to be interested. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things. And that's why I created the Light of the Moon Cafe, which is an online program to teach these tools because typically you don't learn them in your families and we certainly don't teach them in school. And we live in a culture that's severely lacking. It's totally out of balance in terms of the skills that we do learn. And so some of those skills are interoceptive awareness, right? The capacity to identify and respond to your inner physical states. So when you say my head is pounding, my heart is racing, my stomach is growling, it's interoceptive awareness. Our our awareness of what the subtle states of hunger and satiety are. That's interoceptive awareness. Now, many people are taught in that regard to, depending on your generation, maybe you're told about the poor children starving in China or Bangladesh or whatever, and that's why you need to eat everything on your plate. Or somebody who loves you prepared this food. Or we're given all kinds of messages in our culture to disregard our own internal hunger and satiety signals. So, and, and some people are born with that, those signals quite scrambled. I have two daughters. And my older daughter, you could have put ice cream and cake in front of her. And if she was full, she wouldn't touch it. My younger daughter, she would have smeared that all over her belly even if she was full. And, and looking back, I can see how those signals got scrambled. Now I can see it. As a, as a infant, she had a lot of allergies. And so when I was breastfeeding her, she would imagine trying to, trying to suck when you can't breathe through your nose. So she would get, you know, she'd get exhausted and then need to eat an hour later. So those signals got really scrambled for her. I can, I see that in retrospect. As a young mom, I, I didn't see that. Yeah. But there's many ways that those signals get scrambled. So, but you can relearn them. It's totally possible to, to learn to identify and respond to them. Most people, they wait. I'll say, what's the physical sensation you feel in your body when you're hungry and where do you feel it? And they'll go, Oh, my stomach growls really loudly and, and my head, I, my, I get a headache. It's like, no, that's not hunger. That's famished. And what's going to happen if you wait to eat until you're famished? You, me, the rest of us, we're going to eat anything we can get our hands on. And, and I'll ask, what's the physical, of, physical sensation of fullness? And where in your body do you feel it? And they go, oh, it's hard to breathe or I have to unbuckle my belt. Well, no, that's stuffed. And if you continue to eat until you're stuffed, you're probably going to be a body size that's not right for you. So, so that skill of really learning to identify the more subtle levels of hunger and satiety is, is an important recovery skill. Another one is emotional literacy, which is we live in a culture that is, it doesn't even understand the nature of emotions, right? That says you need to control your feelings. Well, no, you can't control your feelings any more than you can swim up a mountain. Feelings are, aren't things. They're energy. They're waves of energy, emotion, energy in motion that, that are designed to move through us. But we don't understand that. So we try and stop them. And, you know, through eating behaviors, whether it's restricting your food or binging or binging and purging. And so learning the nature of your emotions, learning how to ride them like you'd ride the waves in the ocean. If you went to the ocean with your boogie board and you stood there facing the waves and tried to block them, you're going to get knocked down over and over. And so you get this idea, oh, wait, I can turn around. I could ride this wave. Oh, here comes another one. Oh, I'll ride that one. And then when the big set comes in, and it does for all of us, all of us at some point in time, we're going to experience loss of a loved one, financial distress, medical crises. That's the nature of being human. You will know how to ride them. And again, if you're emotionally sensitive, you really need this skill. But it's a skill. It's like learning to ride a bike or sing, drive a car or speak a foreign language. With practice, it can be learned because we're not going to get it from our culture. Our culture doesn't really understand it. The third is media literacy. You have to understand the world we live in puts an enormous amount of pressure on us to look a certain way. And billions and billions of dollars are made out of us feeling bad about the way we look. 
everything from the cosmetic industry to the dieting industry to fitness industry to surgery, I mean, you name it, right? So you have to understand that there's a lot of pressure being thrown at you to make you feel bad about the way you look so you plunk down some money. It, it's important to know that and be prepared for it. So media literacy has to do with just recognizing where these messages are coming from and who stands to benefit because it's not you. So, and then the fourth, and I think this is the most important skill because I've seen thousands and thousands of people totally, completely recover from an eating disorder. Sometimes some of the most severe and long-lasting eating disorder you can imagine. I've seen total complete recovery. I'm not talking about just symptom removal or white-knuckling it, but no more distressing thoughts that haunt you. That, that total complete recovery. But I've never seen anyone do it without this skill. And that's the skill of assertive communication. That's the ability, because this is where you put all these other skills into action. This is the ability to identify accept and express your feelings in a way that honors your experience, but also honors the experience of the other person. It's so powerful because the disordered eating speaks to us and for us. And when you learn how to put those thoughts and feelings into words, you basically put the disordered eating out of a job. Wow. Wow. Could you give me an example of what that might look like? Yeah. Let's say your roommate leaves her towel on the floor all the time and you're getting so annoyed, but you don't say anything because you don't want to uh, make trouble and you end up eating three bags of chips mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. Because metaphorically, and this is the other thing I discovered, you can, you can find what the feeling is by the very foods you, you might binge on or restrict. But to, to, for this point, so you end up, you know, eating all the chips to deal with your frustration. Whereas if you were assertive, you would say, you know, when you leave your towel on the floor, I'd feel frustrated because it seems to me you expect me to pick up after you. One sentence, boom. Now, there's, there's, there's a follow-up to that in case you have a roommate that says, well, you leave your stuff around all the time. And then there's a second technique to that, which is deflection. And you, you don't get into who's right and who's wrong. Never touch that with a 10-foot pole because that's how you end up arguing about something else. And you go, how do we ever end up here? You simply say, that may be so. You're not saying it's so. You're not saying it's not so. But I want you to know that when you continually leave your towel on the floor, I feel really frustrated because it seems like you expect me to pick up after you. And typically, if someone tends to be aggressive, they might tell you three times why you shouldn't be feeling the way you're feeling. But you simply deflect and say, maybe so. You may be right. You're not saying they're right. You're not saying they're wrong. And you just come back to, but I feel frustrated when I come home from work and your towel is on the floor in the middle of the living room. So that's an example. And what happens, and a lot of people make the mistake when they're learning this, this skill of being assertive, they say, well, I tried it and, and it didn't work. And I go, what do you mean it didn't work? They go, well, she kept leaving her towel on the floor. I went, oh, yeah, yeah. The goal of assertive communication isn't to change the other person's behavior or their thoughts or their feelings. Why? Because you don't have that capacity. The goal is to change the way you respond so that you're saying, I'm going to let you know how I feel for your information. You can do whatever you want with that information because you are changing the way you respond and as a result are turning to food and eating behaviors. Right. You're actually allowing what you feel to come out instead of stuffing it back down with food. You're yeah. acting as your as though your thoughts and feelings count matter and and that affects your self-esteem profoundly it also teaches other people that your thoughts and feelings count yeah you take up a little space and i think that's an interesting part of a person and i can definitely see that in myself is like i took up as little space as i possibly could mm-hmm. and the more i started to differentiate and take up space like i had to get used to that sense of i'm here and yeah. that's I'm yeah. part of this. Yeah. I matter. Yeah. yeah. Matter. Not that my needs and feelings are more important than others, but certainly not less, equally as important. 
Yeah, which two things can be true. And I think there is this sense of, especially depending on the household one grows up in, that yours don't matter versus, yes, yeah. I see you, I hear you, but we're still not going to do that. It's very different than yeah. shut up and listen, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's really that's really beautiful. I mean, these tools are are so wonderful and well thought out and really encouraging the person to become who they are and step mm. to who they are, which is mm. powerful. Yeah, that's what recovery is. And the cool thing, this is to me, which is the most fun part of recovery. Now, I get it that recovery can be grueling and it can be painful, but there's also joy to be found in it. When you have these incredible aha moments. And the irony for me is the very foods that you struggle with can tell you what the real issues are. The foods are actually talking to you, but they're talking to you in a language you may not understand, which is the language of metaphor. Mm -hmm. And they're talking to you in code. And if you can crack that code, you can get the message and then that's going to tell you exactly what skills you, you need to develop. So the way I, you want to hear how to do that, I'll tell yes. you how to do that because it's really pretty cool. So you imagine that you have two tanks. We're going to call them really fancy things like tank A and tank B. And tank A is the tank you fill when you need physical nourishment and you fill it with food. This is where the interoceptive awareness comes in. Tank B is the tank that you fill when you need non-physical nourishment, when you need emotional or spiritual nourishment, and you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But we don't know this. We think there's just one tank. So before we know it, tank A is full and overflowing, but we're still hungry. Or maybe um, we don't even want to begin to fill tank A because it seems like the bottomless pit, so we restrict. So the first step is in teasing the two tanks apart. And how do you do that? Introceptive awareness, right? Developing that skill of, of finding your hunger and satiety signals. So for the sake of our discussion, let's imagine that you already have introceptive awareness and you know what your hunger and fullness sensations feel like and where they are in your body. So you're reaching for the pizza and you check in, not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want to eat that pizza. Well, guess what? You just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B. And in tank B, pizza's not pizza. Food isn't food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and may not even know about. So, but it's coded. So you've got to crack the code. So the first question you might ask yourself is, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? Because we don't eat or restrict for emotional reasons. We do it because we don't want to feel our emotions. So you might do a scan of your day and maybe you go, oh yeah, I'm still annoyed at that jerk who cut me off on the freeway. Or I'm worried about an upcoming parent-teacher meeting. Or I'm concerned about a comment my boss made. Or annoyed with something my husband did. Or you do a scan. But I'm here to say that most of the time when you ask yourself that question, the answer is going to be, mm-hmm. I don't know. Everything feels fine, right? Because it's unconscious. It's out of your awareness. And so this is where the food comes in because the very food you're wanting to eat when you're not hungry or not letting yourself eat when you are hungry is telling you what the issue is. Again, it's coded. So it works something like this. And for your listeners, you don't have to write this down. You can go to my website, lightofthemooncafe.com, and you'll be able to slash YGP for your great podcast. And, and you can download this information that I'm going to be sharing, a PDF. So here's the code, how it's, how it's talking to you. Sweet foods. Sweet foods usually have to do with feeling like Either you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. Mm -hmm. So think of the word, the way we use the word sweet, like, 
oh my gosh, that's so sweet. Or she's such a sweetheart. Or sweet. Or where's the sweet spot here? Right? We use that word to talk about things other than food. And so it's talking to you metaphorically. Crunchy, salty foods typically are connected with unexpressed anger and frustration. Right? You want to bite someone's head off, but don't dare. Warm foods like soups and stews typically have to do with the craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods, whether it's a craving for or a fear of, are often associated with excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate. We know this from Valentine's Day, right? Love, romance, sensuality, sexuality. And so the way you you craft the code, I'll give you an example. I had a client, she was struggling with bulimia. And I had asked her, I said, okay, if there were any food that you wish you could eat and there were zero consequences, no consequences whatsoever, what would that food be? And she goes, oh, that's easy. Vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And I said, okay, I want you to imagine I've never had vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And you're going to tell me what's so wonderful about it. And she said, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. Well, when we took a look at what was going on in her life at that point in time, her boyfriend had accused her of not being sweet enough. She just hit a rough patch with her parents that she was desperately wanting to smooth out. And she was in a dead-end job in need of a refreshing change. It was all there in that food. Sometimes it's the, the, the name of the food itself that holds the metaphor. So I was working with this woman. She was an emergency road physician. And one day she came rushing into my office and she was so upset with herself. Oh my gosh. She was just beating herself up. I'm so disgusted with myself. I can't believe what I just did. And I went, wow, what happened? She goes, well, I got off of work, came home. I was fixing chicken tenders for myself and my husband. And before he even got home, I ate them all myself. I'm so disgusted. She was just going, I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's see if we can roll the clock back. So let's see. You had just come off of, what was it? A 12, 14 hour shift in the ER, tending to all kinds of physical and emotional trauma, right? She went, right. And we'd worked together for a while. So I said, what do you think you were really hungry for? And she said, a hug. I said, yeah, you wanted some TLC? some tender loving care, and instead you ate the chicken tenders. Now, because this metaphor was on target, she laughed because this is what happens. This is where the fun comes in. When it's on target, and she laughed and she she realized that was exactly it. Now, this woman will never eat chicken tenders again when she's not hungry. Remember, if you have the physical sensation, food is just food. But because she's no longer hungry and 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 then it means something different it you're dealing with the metaphor so when we eat when we're not hungry that is when we're filling up the emotional tank rank b exactly Mm -hmm. and and the food itself if you can't find out what that is the food itself is speaking to you metaphorically i mean it makes so much sense it mm-hmm. makes so much sense. It really does. I'm looking back trying to remember what my foods were, and they were all sweet. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, in a way, what's happening when you're having those urges, there's a window that's being presented to you in that moment of what the real issues are that need to be addressed. But again, you've got to, you've got to understand that it's not about the food. If you're in tank B, if you're in tank A, it is about the food. So that's the irony of working with disordered eating is that it's about the food and it's not about the food at the same time. So whatever the eating disorder, whether it's binge and purge or restrict, are they basically the drivers are the same thing? Basically, it's the emotional drivers? Yes and no. The way you get to them might be a little different because metaphorically, what you're doing with food is also telling you something. So for example, someone who struggles with anorexia, who restricts their food, that is not the only thing they're restricting in their life. You look at this pattern of restriction, you will see that they restrict new experiences or they might restrict 
their emotions, or they may restrict intimacy or their sexuality, or they may put themselves on restriction if they make a mistake. So you start seeing this pattern of restriction. Someone who is binging and purging, what you'll find is you're going to find a pattern of taking in or taking on too much too quickly, not being able to assimilate it and have to get rid of it. So they'll sign up for a gazillion classes in school, get overwhelmed and drop out. Or they meet someone fall madly in love and at the first sign of a conflict, they bail. Or they might take on a, a ton of projects, get overwhelmed and drop them all. Or they might meet some of their best, best, best friends. And as soon as a conflict arises, they ghost them. So, so this process is everywhere, but it gets our attention when it gets played out with food. And someone who binges, food is not the only thing because you're going to find this theme of scarcity everywhere. It's not just there's not enough food. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough attention. There's not enough appreciation. There's not enough coffee. You name it. So once you start addressing that that pattern of scarcity, or maybe they're not enough, they feel like they're not enough. So you start looking at with someone who's restricting the issues of too muchness. Too, there's too much, there's more than they can handle so that they have to restrict what's coming at them. So you you can see these different patterns that are revealing given the patterns of in, in that you discover in the relationship with food. Wow, it's really profound to think how different the actions are of each of those three possible disordered. Yeah, patterns. especially because we move around, right? We know that with disordered eating, it can be a continuum. You might start off restricting and then find yourself binging and then thinking like you got to undo the damage and you find yourself purging through exercise or whatever. And and so we kind of, it, it, it's not a static thing. We can move around. So paying attention to those patterns is important because when you start to clear the pattern in other areas of your life, it affects what's going on with you and food. And when you clear the pattern of, of what's going on with you and food, that affects the other areas of your life. So it's really pretty cool when you start coming at it from that angle. A domino effect. Can a person's food be totally in line and can over-exercising be the expression of the disorder? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, right? Often there's this idea where you got to do more, more reps, more miles. So you're going to find this not good enough theme, right? Mm. Not, Not strong enough, not fast enough, not whatever enough. And you start dealing with that theme. That's an interesting theme because I think that one could be sneaky because it's not related around food and it's related around something that everybody reveres, which is yeah. you're an athlete, you're working out, this is so great. Yeah, but the pro- and this is true, but the problem is, is when the joy of movement becomes a should. Now, now this is, you're right, it's a very slippery slope for athletes because someone might start out loving swimming. But then as time goes on, it becomes a chore. It becomes something that sucks their soul rather than feeds their soul. And now you're getting into that addictive area. And typically, it's the body that'll shut that down. You're going to get an injury. Something's going to, you know, something's going to happen. And, and, and then what? That's when you know you're in exercise addiction or there's the reverse side of it. There is exercise resistance, which was created. This is a concept that was formulated by my friend, Francie White, where again, you, you, you think you should be moving your body and you sit down and you pull out the remote and just flick the remote, right? It's a very real thing and it has the same kind of drivers as exercise addiction or eating disorders or There are underlying issues. It's not that there's something wrong with you, but there's issues that have to be addressed. So if you don't like to move, that can be the flip side of needing to move too much. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And once you get to understand what that is, and there are some really powerful techniques for finding the underlying issues, everything from trauma to the menstrual cycle, to your sexuality, to messages from a gym teacher or from parents. or I mean, there's all kinds of stuff because we are born with this innate drive to move our body for joy. 
You look at kids that are swinging on the swing or splashing in puddles. They're not doing it to tighten their thighs or to lose weight. It's for the joy of it. But we don't live in a culture that appreciates that. And we live in a, a, a patriarchal system that will take over and, and really suck the joy out of movement. And then it starts to, you start to do it for reasons other than that. Yeah, because I, I ask my clients sometimes, well, how do you enjoy moving? Oh, I don't. Exactly. And I'm always like, you don't. Because we are physical beings. So to shut down movement yeah. is such an interesting, yeah. it's really interesting. I, I honestly, I had not thought of that one as part of the disordered relationship. Yeah. But it's yeah. It's fascinating. If anyone wants to know more, go to francywhite.com and, and there are, she's got some interesting videos about that. It's very cool. Do you, do you work with all of the disordered? Do you mostly yeah. predominantly work with eating disorders of all kinds with the relationship to over exercising or under exercising? The whole gamut. It all, because to me, you know, the symptomology is just showing you where to look, right? So, there's a saying in Zen Buddhism, don't look at the finger pointing to the moon, look at the moon, right? So whatever the behaviors are, that's telling you there's something where there's a lack of harmony because our true nature is to be harmonious. And so what might that be? And you have to look way beyond the behaviors to the patterns and to the meaning behind the patterns. Mm. So when I first started off, when I was in graduate school many, many years ago, I walked into this class and there was this little old man and he was talking in, in a very strong accent. I had to really concentrate to understand. And that man turned out to be Viktor Frankl and I had no idea who he was. And it turns out he wrote one of the most seminal books of the of, of our century called Man's Search for Meaning that came as a result of his time in the Nazi prison camps during World War II and, and where he lost everything. He lost his wife and his entire family. But what he discovered is that you can be stripped of everything, everything that it, you've ever felt dear to you in your life. But there's one thing that can never be taken from you, and that is the meaning you give to your experience, and therein lies your freedom. So, what we're working with, whatever it is someone is struggling for, I'm following the breadcrumbs. I'm trying to get to what's the meaning beneath this, because that's where their freedom lies. And does it take going back into their history to untangle where they got lost along the way? Or can you simply take a person where they are and help them move forward? Say both. Okay. It's not that you don't have to go back and relive all the gory details, but it does help to go, wow, no wonder I do this, right? Because that kind of takes away some of the blame and shame because we... You know, we think there's something wrong with us, but when you can see, oh, yeah, given that situation, of course I would respond like that. No wonder, you know, as a five-year-old, I, I added two and two together and came up with five because I didn't have the faculties to, to come up with something different. So in that regard, it's helpful, uh, but really we're dealing with, okay, how is that getting played out? in the present. And how do you have to remind yourself that, oh yeah, that's a story I told myself when I was five years old, and that was the best story I could come up with, but that doesn't mean it was true. Mm -hmm. So it's it's going back, it's understanding, and, and it's almost creating, it, do you create new meaning to move forward? Totally. You create new meaning. So the way I look at it is, if you think of your life as a three-act play, so act one, the script has been written, the characters have been cast. You don't have a lot of say. These are your parents. Here's your ethnicity. Here's your socioeconomic group. Here's part of the world you're born in. Here's your, your childhood trauma. Here's your car accident. Here's your eating disorder. All of the stuff you don't choose and life delivers up. Act two, it's still the script is pretty much written. There's some room for improv. And ad-libbing, you might finesse a few things and, and cultivate some coping mechanisms, but basically it's been spelled out. Act three is yours to write. You get to decide, 
is your story going to be a story of, of victimization? Her life sucked when she was born and it sucked when she died. It's tragic. Or is it going to be a Horatio Alger tale, rags to riches? She she came from so little, little, and look what she made of it. Or is it going to be a tale of irony, like, oh my God, who would have thought that when this happened, she was able to take it and turn it into that? Or is it going to be an inspirational tale where others are going to go, oh my gosh, if she could do it, well, then I can do it. That is yours to write. And that's where the meaning comes in. What is the meaning you're going to give to your story? You're in charge of that. You're not in charge of what happened, but you are in charge of the meaning you give to what happened. I think a lot of people need to hear that because I think that there are so many people that are living thinking, I, this is the way. Yeah, I'm cursed. Yeah. Oh, wow, right? And no, that's never the case. But you can write the next story, but it also takes taking responsibility. Is that, would that be the correct way to put it? Yeah. And I think a responsibility in terms of the ability to respond, right? It's yes. not, we're not talking about like, oh, okay, this is your responsibility. You have to do it. It's not like you're duty bound and it's full of shoulds. It's like, no, when you realize that you now have the, the, the resources and the faculties to create something different, then you had the ability to respond. Yes. And, and yes, that was a great point because taking responsibility can oftentimes feel like taking the blame where blame. it's not. It's not about that. It's, yeah. It's not about blaming you. It's not about blaming others. It is what it is. This is what happened. These are the cards you were dealt. Now what? Yeah, these are the facts and and mm -hmm. this is the future that you get to create and move forward with as an empowered mm -hmm. person. The past is, to me, looking back is a way to learn and move forward versus a way to stay tethered to a, a story or a or even an ideology. Yeah, Byron Katie says something that I, I, I love and she says, you can't let go of the story, but if you investigate the story, it lets go of you. That's well said. I, I trained as a life coach and, and we actually worked with Byron Katie's structure a lot and it's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And I was being coached through it by my coach today doing some <laughs> of the work. It's powerful. Ouch. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also you suddenly realize that the story that you've been walking around with, that you've been, you know, poor me, boo-hoo, and, and you break it down through the process. And it's hard, but it sets you free. It sets you free once you understand that the suffering comes from the story. Yeah, the story. Wow. Yeah, it was. And, and my coach, my fellow coach, she said, wow, but unique. There were so many things here that I wrote down for next time. <laughs> I mean, that's why I work with story and metaphor. Metaphor is the language of story. And so I like to use old fairy tales and folk tales because they hold within them, which is why they've been passed down for thousands of years. I mean, Beauty and the Beast is 6,000 years old and has been passed down orally. I mean, like, why is that? Because they contain certain truths about the human experience. And again, they help you understand the language of metaphor that you can then apply to your own life. Oh, it's so powerful. And it disarms what can feel like a very sticky scenario of trying to understand whether it is trauma or, yeah. or you know, just the story, the experience of the trauma. Yeah. How we, in, as an individual, you know, I have siblings, we were all in the same situation, but how I went through it was very different from how they went through it. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is with story, you, you use a different part of your brain. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool. I'm I'm a bit of a neuroscience geek, so I can get really excited about what's happening in the brain when you have those aha moments or when you're doing story listening. It's it's pretty powerful. That's amazing. Well, I actually a couple of my clients are the ones who told me to pick up your book and I did and then I started following you and I'm just really excited to have you as a resource for my community because I just think it's really important. We have such a epidemic going on of disordered self. And that's mm. really what it is. It's self that's been lost. And exactly. you're picking up the clues and helping and, and, and empowering and giving the tools. When I was in high school, I didn't have any tools. I literally 
overcame it myself and then years later could afford therapy to kind of untangle what was going on. But it really was for me back then, it was a top down realizing what I was doing, stopping what I was doing, going to the library, learning about it. I'm I'm 47, so I've been out of high school a long time. But, you know, it, and but it was also shameful. It was shameful to recover because I thought I'm so ashamed of myself. You know, yeah. once I realized what I was doing was yes. something that you shouldn't be doing and and untangling it, it was all white knuckle. Mm-hmm. Uh, every, every meal I sat down to, I had to have a mantra over it of this is nourishing me. This is mm-hmm. nourishing my body. And that was how I moved forward mm-hmm. and out of it. But it wasn't until later working through it in therapy that I was able to really mm-hmm. understand <laughs> the root of it. Yeah. I mean, I believe total complete recovery is possible, but that the answers are inside of you. Mm-hmm. And and I also believe that those who struggle with disordered eating and get on the recovery path are the people the world has been waiting for. Because as I said earlier, what comes with it is a level of empathy and compassion that the world really needs now. And you are a perfect example of that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I feel like people, adult people seeking help for they're binging, whether they're purging or not, they're binging or they're restricting habits. There's, there is shame. There is this sense of shame of like, I don't want to be seen as imperfect or having a problem or needing help. And the fact that you offer a personal approach, I, I, th- I just think is so wonderful. And I'm, I'm really thankful for your work. Yeah. The, the, the courses that my, I have some interactive courses where we have folks from all over the world. And it is so, cool because there is nothing like a circle of women supporting each other to bring about healing there there is a movement afoot right now of women stepping into consciousness i i happen to believe i I call it the feminine principle it has arrived on our planet maybe for the first time in seven to thirty thousand years there's something very cool going on and those women who struggle with eating and their bodies and they get on that path, they're part of this movement. It's really extraordinary, which is why I've been working in this field for so long because I find it really exciting what's happening. Well, I think women, you know, and this is just a perception that I've had from my viewpoint in the world is that women kind of lost their way with each other. Oh, yeah. Really didn't know how to relate to each other as well as part of the problem. And to create these places where we can relate and connect. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it sounds really beautiful. So do you, are you the one in the course running these courses and do you have courses for men as well? No, the courses that, what are the courses that I have are simply for women because that's how I get, got started. And I, it would be, difficult to uh, for me to shift over. I try to be as inclusive as I can. I do work individually with men, but but the courses are women's circles. And the first course is an eight-week course of daily activities with a daily forum. And I'm on that forum every day, responding to all the comments, all the questions. And then we have some live calls. So it's a full-on women's circle. And then those that complete the course, then they can step into what I call the journey, which is less intensive, where the activities are simply once a week. But I'm still in there in the forum answering all comments. And then we have live Zoom calls. So the journey continues, but it starts off fairly intensive because that's what I found it needs in order for people to shift out of like diet mentality or you know, you got to shift those stories to start off with. And, and then, then you can start to you know, integrate that more and more into your life. Wonderful. I will link all of your information. Where can people find you? Lightofthemooncafe.com is one of the places. I also have a site, DrAnitaJohnston.com. And then my residential treatment program is Ipono, A-I-P-O-N-O.com. And are you on Instagram as well? Yes, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, lightofthemooncafe.com. 
drnitajohnston.com. Is there anything that you would like to share before I let you go today? And I just want to say thank you so much. I enjoyed listening to you. I enjoy the fact that you work with metaphor. I think it's nothing that I haven't said already, but I would like to emphasize that absolute, total, complete recovery is possible, providing you get to those underlying issues. It's, it's sort of like a weed. If you go down and clear those root issues, it's a done deal. That's amazing because what I was about to ask you is if somebody has recovered, but they find themselves in, a, in an emotional situation that is tethered to history, will these tools also help them catch themselves in the moment? Oh, totally. I mean, these tools, the cool thing is, you know, long after your eating disorder is gone, you've got these tools to deal with whatever life sends your way. So that is kind of why I said these are the people the world has been waiting for. Because I'm telling you, if you're emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive, and you're equipped with these tools, watch out, world. It's fabulous. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And it was such a pleasure to meet you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you have a wonderful morning, evening or afternoon, wherever you are in this wonderful world.